not many religions, not many organizations or systems of belief celebrate the death of their founder. Some will memorialize it, commemorate it, not celebrate. Just take a minute and step back and think about how odd this is. We just finished singing about the death of the one that we love, that we worship. And yet if someone were to ask, what's the main thing about your faith? What's at the root of it? What's the the centerpiece of this thing that you call Christianity? This is it, right here. This is not peripheral. This is right at the heart of it. This strange fascination and even celebration of death can be traced right back to the roots of Christianity. In fact, long before Christ came, in fact, right to the beginning. Genesis 3, as God is promising, there's a rescuer who will come who will deliver you from death. And as Adam and Eve try to cover themselves with fig leaves, the Lord says, no, no, no. An animal must die to give you a proper covering. There must be death. One of the clearest displays, one of the most vivid displays uh, is in the Passover. So we have this unique opportunity as we've been walking through the book of Exodus and we come now to chapters 11 and 12 to just pause and see the richness of this and to line that up with Good Friday and, and Resurrection Sunday. This is a a great opportunity. Um, let me invite you to turn your Bibles to uh, Exodus 11. If you don't have a Bible, um, just slip up your hand. One of our ushers will grab one for you. We want you to have God's Word uh, in your hand um, so that you can see His truth. Um, that This isn't my ideas. That's not my goal, um, but that God's Word would speak this morning. This is the pivotal event in the book of Exodus. Um, this is a pivotal moment in the, in the creation and the formation of the nation and the religion of Israel. Uh, so we're going to spend today and Sunday talking about the Passover. What did it mean for them and what does it mean for us? We're going to work from chapter 11, verse 1 through to 12, 14. Um, and the first thing we see is this penalty for sin. Let me read uh, Exodus chapter 11. Let me start in verse 1, but maybe before we do that, I think it's helpful to understand these verses, I think, happen as Moses is walking out of Pharaoh's throne room. The ninth plague, the plague of darkness, had come, and, and Pharaoh sends Moses out with a threat. I never want to see your face again. If I see your face again, you're going to die. Verses, or cha- verses 1 to 3 in chapter 11, I think, are uh, parentheses. This is what the Lord has already told Moses previously, that there would be one more plague, one final blow, and then uh, Pharaoh would indeed let the people go. And then verses 4 to 6 is Moses kind of on his way out, turning back to Pharaoh and saying, Oh, by the way, it's coming. Here's the last plague. So let me... Read this for us, Exodus chapter 11, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh 
and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there never has been nor ever will be again. This is a jarring scene. This is shocking. I, the Lord, about midnight will come through Egypt and kill every firstborn child. This is horrifying. Think of the the reality of this children in every home dead. From Pharaoh's household to the, the lowliest of servant, there is weeping and mourning and terror. A cry went out across the land. No doubt wailing over the loss. And our modern sensibilities are outraged. How can this be? This is precisely where many would say, if that's the God of Christianity, I will have nothing to do with him. That's horrible. How dare he? How could God kill all of those innocent children? It's a good question. And yet, to this circumstance, it's totally irrelevant. Totally irrelevant. You see, missing from our modern worldview is this fact. There are no innocent children. There's no such thing. It's a myth. The Bible tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us. We we don't live up to God's standard. Not one. And as much as we try to hide it and and ignore it and bury it and be distracted from it, we can't deny it. We've all done things that we know are wrong. Things that, that we are now ashamed of. And that's just based on our own warped and muddy conscience as humans. Imagine what that looks like from God's perfect perspective. Every single one of us, from the king on his throne to the slave in the mud, has broken God's law, has rebelled against him, have acted and lived contrary to what is good and right and true. But it's even more fundamental than that. The Bible tells us that we're actually born into sin. We're born as part of this sinful, rebellious human race. We are guilty at birth. This heart that's bent towards rebellion against God from the very beginning. 
think about this. We aren't called sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Sin is not some problem that's exterior to us. It's not just something we do. It's it's what we are, and it's sin that flows out from our sinful nature. You don't have to teach an infant child to be selfish. You don't have to teach a young child to, to steal or to lie. From the very beginning, before this disease of sin had even attached itself to us as humans in the Garden of Eden, God warned Adam, the day you disobey me, the day you step out of my goodness, you will die. I will not stand for it. Sin will be punished. The wages of sin is death. And Partly, this is just natural consequences. God is the perfect architect, the the creator of this world, and he's designed it a certain way. He's designed it to work a certain way. And it's like any complex, finely tuned machine as it's running at this high RPM. If, If one piece gets out of balance, steps out from where it should be, the whole thing begins to rattle and shake and eventually self destruct. But it's more than that. It's also the direct result of God's judgment, God's wrath against sin. He is absolutely, unrelentingly dedicated to what is right and good and true and beautiful. And we ought to be thankful that he is. But then he also must be ferociously opposed to anything that deviates from that perfect goodness. Like any good judge, he will punish all wickedness to the full extent of what it deserves. The wages of sin is death doesn't just mean the natural consequences of pain and suffering and the fallout from sin. It also means the application of God's wrath against our wickedness. But that wrath of God is poured out against all who violate his perfect standard. There will be a final judgment to come. A punishment on sinners and that's all of us. Every single one of us born under and living under this constant thoroughly deserved penalty of death. It's only by God's grace and patience and kindness that we continue to draw breath day after day. We we don't like to think this way. We don't like to talk this way. As Jonathan Edwards put it, there is no reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you got up this morning, but that God has held you up. He talks about God holding us as a man holds a spider in his hand over the fire. And here in Egypt, God is simply withdrawing that grace, that kindness that has been withholding and delaying the outpouring of his wrath, this fully deserved penalty of death. And and even then, he's only doing it on a few, on the firstborn children. 
There are no innocent children. There are only sinners who deserve death. And God in Egypt said to Pharaoh, because of your consistent rebellion against me, despite warning after warning after warning, I am going to let just a sliver, just a drop of my wrath come to rest here tonight for you to see, for you to be warned yet again. It's the penalty of sin. And so if we're seeing clearly If we're understanding this from a biblical worldview, those verses ought not to surprise us. What ought to surprise us are the next verses when we see this absolutely unexpected pardon for sinners. This is what ought to shock us. Picking up at verse 7, But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. There's a stark contrast here. Among the Egyptians, there will be death in every home. The consequence of sin come to rest. There will be wailing across the land like there had never been before and would never be again. But among the Israelites, not even a dog would growl against them. God will rescue them. And and not only out of the hand of the destroyer, the angel of death who would come that night, but from the hands of Pharaoh as well. Verse 7 says, the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. But how? How can this be? How is that right? Again, if we're seeing clearly, it's at this point that we scream out, that's not fair. They aren't perfect. They're part of this fallen, sinful human race. They're descendants of Adam, just like Egypt, just like us. We've come through Exodus. We've already seen Israel pushing back against God, rebelling against God. We'll see that more as the book goes on. They deserve the same curse of death as the Egyptians. But in in what ought to come to us as a great surprise, the Lord seemingly goes against his absolutely perfect and unchanging character and he pardons them. Why? How? How is this debt paid? How does God do this thing? This God who is absolutely unrelentingly dedicated to all that is good and righteous and true, who is ferociously opposed to any deviation from his perfect standard, how can he pardon sinners? This really is the single greatest question of all of Scripture. Chapter 12 begins to answer it for us. We see this penalty of sin and then the the pardon of sinners. And into chapter 12, we see the provision of a substitute. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month in the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, 
a lamb for the household. And if his household is too small for a lamb and he is nearest, his, he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they are to eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Until sorry, Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. And in this manner you shall eat of it with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet with your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. There's a lot in there. We're going to come back to this passage on Sunday and unpack a lot more of it. So we're going to leave some things behind today. But here's the short answer. How does this God, dedicated to all that is good and ferociously opposed to anything that deviates from his goodness, simply pardon sinners? And the answer is by providing a substitute. There will be death in every single home. But in any home where these stipulations are followed, the death of the lamb would stand in the place of the death of the firstborn. The Lord was clear and specific. A male lamb, without blemish, a year old, so it's in the prime of its life. And they would take it into their home on the 10th day of the month and they would keep it four days until the 14th day of the month. You can imagine at that point the kids have named it. They're feeding it and petting it. And on the 14th day at twilight, term there means afternoon, probably 3 to 5 p.m. In this gruesome display, they would take this lamb and slit its throat. Hold it down as it kicked and bawled and bled. They were to collect some of the blood into a basin. They would take the blood and they would smear it on the lintel, that's the top crossbar, and on the two doorposts. Then they were to hide in that house, eating the lamb together, roasted over the fire. The Lord said when he saw the blood on the doorframe, he would pass over that house. The blood would be a sign and then no plague would befall you when I strike the land of Egypt. 
This is messy, gruesome, gory, uncomfortable. This display of, of death displays the ugliness of our sin and what it deserves in just a fraction. But can you imagine, Father, looking down at your youngest or your oldest child and knowing that if you failed to walk through this process, the life of your child was forfeit. Can you imagine being that oldest child, sitting around the fire, eating your roasted lamb, hearing the screams of terror and mourning from the houses around you, and knowing the only reason you are alive is because that lamb is dead. That's how God pardons sinners. Providing this substitute. And what a strange thing, isn't it? Why lamb? Really, can a, can a lamb cover the penalty of sin? Does a lamb make this right? Some blood on a doorframe, does that really appease the holiness of God? Is that all it takes? Can a lamb substitute for the life of a human, for a sinner, and pay the infinite debt that we owe against God's justice? The answer is no, it can't. It can't. The Bible comes right out and says that the blood of bulls and goats and lambs never took away sin. How could it? A lamb doesn't have that kind of value. Now, the killing of the lamb did not cover the penalty of sin. did not satisfy the righteousness of God. It didn't fulfill the demands of justice. What it was was an act of faith. Faith in the grace of God. Faith looking forward to something greater. God had promised at the very beginning, I will send a rescuer. And he's been revealing little by little about what that rescuer would be like and what he would accomplish. And the Passover, as this substitute of the Lamb, is actually a promise of the Savior. That's what we see in verse 14. says, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. They were to keep doing this. Over and over again, constantly repeating this sacrifice of the Lamb year after year after year after year. Tonight. Jews around the world will be engaging in this Passover meal. They're to do it throughout the generations. Why? Because this sacrifice of a lamb was never meant to be the solution. If it had been, once would have been enough. Or maybe once per generation. Why do it again? But it was about so much more than a lamb. The practice of the Passover was 
in itself the promise of a Savior to come. They were to do it every year and every year explaining again to their children, to their family, how God brought them out of Egypt, how he rescued them, killing the Passover lamb and and showing how the lamb died in our place so that when those promises were fulfilled, they would know what they were looking at. They would understand the rescuer had come and what he was accomplishing. They would see it for what it was. A lamb could never take away sin. But Jesus can. Jesus was the Passover lamb. A male in the prime of his life. Entered into Jerusalem on the 10th of the month, four days before Passover. He was inspected and examined by the Pharisees and the scribes and he was sinless. He was without spot or blemish. He was betrayed, arrested, whipped, beaten. But just like the Passover lamb, none of his bones were broken. He was hung on the cross and at twilight he died. And as the lamb was subjected to the fire, so Jesus was subjected to the wrath of God. His blood spread on the top and the sides of that cruel wooden cross. Whoever would come into that house, whoever would find safe haven there, find a substitute. Whoever would come in and as Jesus said, eat his flesh, partake of him, identify with him, would be passed over when the time of judgment came. No harm would befall them. The Lord would look on the blood of the substitute and he would overlook the sinner. Because this substitute was not just a lamb. It was not a a promise looking forward to something else. It was God himself descended down, taking on human flesh, actually paying the penalty of sin, doing what bulls and goats and lambs never could have done. God Himself, the Son of God, taking on the wrath of God the Father. Wrath that would have taken you and I each an eternity to absorb, poured out on Him on that cross. This is the miracle of Good Friday. That sinners might actually be made innocent. This is the centerpiece of Christianity. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter that we were bought with the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without spot or blemish. 
That's why John the Baptist, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, cried out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So here's the absolutely crucial question. How do you find shelter in this Lamb? How do you come into the house? Make no mistake, anyone in Egypt who did not have that marking of blood on the doorframe of their house was subject to the wrath of God. John 3.36, Jesus says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. How do you hide in this shelter, this substitutionary sacrifice? And the answer is believe in the Son. It's faith. It's trusting in Jesus. Hide in Him. Identify with Him. Live in Him. It's simultaneously as simple and as radically life-altering as that. Trust Him by faith. And those who are in him, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The cross has paid it all. Not, nothing left. The wrath of God has been totally and completely absorbed. That's why we call it Good Friday. That's why we gather to celebrate the death of our Passover lamb. Because sin has a penalty. But Christ, our Passover lamb, creates pardon for sin.